Hello, my name is Kevin Zaka, and welcome to Casual Robotics, a show where people at the intersection of robotics and artificial intelligence can have relaxed conversations about the field, its history, and its exciting future directions. Today, it's my great pleasure to host my good friends Eric Jang and Pete Florence for the inaugural episode, where we discuss progress towards general-purpose robots. Eric and Pete are both research scientists at Google, working on deep learning and robotic manipulation. Without further ado, let's get started. Hey, Eric. Hey, Pete. It's great to have you guys here. So the topic of today's uh, episode is just generally we want to talk about progress towards general purpose robots. And I think a great first point to talk about is I've heard CV people look at robotics progress and complain that the, task we're, the tasks we're solving today look the same as the tasks we used to solve 50 years ago. And it seems from an outsider's point of view that not a lot of progress is being made in robotics. And I'd love to get your your opinion on that as two people who are doing you know, research, uh, research in this area. Do you want to start, Eric? Uh, sure. Thanks. Um, yeah, I think that's a great question. And to be honest, I, th I feel like the CV people do have a point there. So I think there's two, two ways to look at like progress in robotics, uh, what you're seeing in the demos and then like what is going on under the hood. Um, so I think the demos themselves have not changed too much. Uh, like, most of manipulation is still working on pick and place and locomotion is getting quadrupeds to walk. Um, and I think most of the change has been happening underneath the hood in terms of like ripping out the entire stack and then replacing with deep neural nets, much the same way that perception has been replacing, uh, the stack with deep neural nets. And I think early on, you're not going to see a lot of like qualitative behavior differences when you're, when you're swapping out these components. But I, I, I suppose the hope for these end to end robotics people is to um, and I, I believe this myself as well as, is that once you do this, then the system will become much more general. And then in a few years time, the capabilities it'll be able to do will be much more advanced than what you could do with the uh, classical approach taken a few decades ago. Yeah, totally. And I, I would add on to, to both to what Eric said, and also to maybe start by validating the view that, uh, uh, these, uh, computer vision folks might have about the lack of progress in robotics in at least, you know, viewed with a certain lens. I think, you know, specifically, I'm even thinking of there's this like, it's actually very poorly documented, but it's this 1970 demo called the copy demo at the MIT AI lab. And there's a handful of pictures and even like a little bit of video from it. And it's a robot manipulator arm like moving around some blocks on a flat surface. And it actually looks a lot like a lot of sort of demos that get published at, you know, robotics conferences, you know, this year, last year. Um, so I think definitely there is the at least service level perception that sometimes the demos can look quite similar. I think Eric is totally right that a lot of the machinery underneath is getting changed out um, in a lot of different exciting ways. Um, I also think that, um, and I think, you know, both of you know this, but there's a lot of sort of subtleties that happen with robot behavior that at least for me, and I think for you two, too, we get excited about, and you kind of need a certain, you need to develop kind of a certain taste right now. I would say kind of like, you know, developing a taste for coffee or wine where it's these like little subtle behaviors that I get excited about. And I get excited about them because I think they will add up to, as you know, Eric's talking about the ability to have sort of much more general purpose robots. And these types of behaviors are like, you know, 
real-time closed-loop interaction for, for manipulation where it's like you might knock something over and you might pick it right back up or also uh, – on the perception side, things that, you know, that, that copy demo from MIT that I was talking about from 1970, that was with all of these like perfect cube blocks that were like the, you know, the geometric properties of them were known ahead of time, but, you know, doing something like, you know, grabbing a plastic bag of almonds and ripping open the top of the plastic bag and grabbing all the little almonds out of like, that's something that like would have been completely impossible um, in the seventies, uh, with, with uh, techniques at the time. But I think, and I haven't actually seen somebody do that demo, but I think it would be possible if you did enough, you know, both Eric and I, and you too, Kevin, we like learning from demonstration a lot. I think if you had a capable robot did enough demos, I think you could get that to work. Um, but, um, yeah, so overall, I think from a sort of bystander perspective, sometimes things might look, you know, somewhat similar, but I think a lot of the machinery has changed. And then I would also point out too, that in some ways, um, there are robot demos from the 2010s and 2020s that would have been completely impossible in the 70s, right? And I think, you know, maybe the best example would be like Atlas from Boston Dynamics, for example. There was no Atlas from mm -hmm. Boston Dynamics, you know, 50 years ago. Um, now, is that a general purpose robot at the moment? Or, you know, what are the missing components that, you know, Atlas can't do to sort of be a fully general purpose robot? We could get into that. But that's one that is, I think, very visually different than what we could do 50 years ago. Yeah, here's a demo. I love all these uh, answers. Uh, if I can add on to that, uh, here, here's a mm -hmm. demo I can imagine in the future, what it looks like. So initially you see the flat table with the blocks and his arm, and it's like stacking the blocks. Then the demo pans out to reveal that it's not, it's a, the arm is attached to a humanoid robot. <laughs> and then, it, and then we find out that the robot will stop at nothing to like stack those blocks. So for example, you could transport those blocks into a different room. It'll go and get them and then put the blocks there. And then you can keep on like, you know, uh, testing the robustness of the stack block stacking capability. Like, you know, you, you hide the blocks and the block and the robot like now negotiates with the nearest human to help them find the blocks. And like, I, I guess maybe, you know, that's kind of far away, but one question I have is like, what sort of demos should we be shooting for then? Like what would be a sufficiently kind of impressive demo that would convince, um, that's, let's say the CV people, uh, that, you know, robotics actually has progressed considerably. Yeah. Those are all great, great answers guys. Thanks. I guess maybe we can talk about like policy evaluation. That seems to be really hard these days. Eric has a great blog post on this, but you can imagine if you're trying to scale your, your ro robot learning to lots of tasks and trying to generalize to lots of household objects and all the complexities of the real world. You can't know if you're making progress unless you're actually running it in the real world and computing some form of some metrics. And I'd love to get your take on what this looks like for, you know, a grad student doing research and what this looks like for, you know, you two, you two work at uh, Google. Do you think that you require different tools to do these things or we should all be using the same statistical tools to do these, these evaluations. And yeah, just generally, are we limited by this today? And should we be finding proxy metrics to, to make progress on this? Pete, you wanna take that first? Sure. Yeah, it's a really good question. So like overall topic of how do we do evaluation in robotics um, and the sort of, you know, the sort of big elephant in the room here is that running robots in the real world a lot of times such that with sufficient statistical certainty, we can say that thing A is better than thing B is just, it's expensive. And it's not even like necessarily the kind of 
it's not just that the robot is expensive it's it's the time and the engineering and the resetting of the world and like controlling all of these conditions like that is the really really hard part i think um and things change over time it, it's just very challenging i think people are doing better and better job at it but it's very very challenging mm -hmm. so i think there's multiple sort of paths i think one is that we can get better and better at sort of like things that are actually real world but sort of like cheap and small and repeatable and you know th there's that uh project i think it's uh at max planck or some probably some other uh, organizations involved as well where it's this like tiny little three-fingered robot in a box and like Mm-hmm. You know, you could imagine like filling a warehouse of tiny little three fingers uh, robots in a box and, you know, that could maybe have some amount of scalability. But I think I think we will get better and better at real world evaluation. But then I think, too, and if I remember correctly, but Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, part of your the point of your blog post was that evaluation and simulation is, is quite, quite valuable. But I think it's, um, you know, it's a it's a subtle beast. There's the uh, there's the great saying, what is it like, you know? Uh, every simulation is doomed to succeed. And, uh, you know, more specifically, I think that making simulations that are representative of what we care about is, is challenging, making simulations that are sufficiently diverse, both in the kind of the environments and then also like the goals in the environments and the metrics. These things are all actually pretty hard. I think in mm -hmm. the simulation world, the sort of model that I like the most right now is to do a ton of evaluation and simulated environments um and that's very useful for sort of generally figuring out what what strategies work what algorithms works what model architectures work things like that and then with some frequency do some validation experiments to try to sort of double check that like the things that you see are better in simulation are actually better in the real world so there's this sort of like parallel process where you're kind of to a certain extent with smaller scale experiments, checking that real world things, sort of the ordering of different methods and thing like, things like that seem to match with what you're seeing in simulation. And then just at a large scale running simulation experiments. I think that's the model yeah. that I like the most right now. And then also there's this, I think a, a lot of people think of sim to real as like you train in simulation and then you just deploy the exact algorithm and model and including like the weights of, you know, a lot of people use neural nets in robotics now. You even deploy the exact weights of the neural net in the real world. The model that I like the most right now is like sim to real, but of the algorithm and hyperparameters. So like we we do a bunch of simulation to find the best architecture, algorithm, and and very importantly, like hyperparameters of training these models. So, you know, just simple things like learning rate, uh, the hyperparameters mm -hmm. of how wide or deep networks are, things like that. And then without transferring the weights at all, we go and we train in a bunch of real world data. So you transfer everything except for basically the actual weights. That's sort of sim to real for the hyperparameters, but not the weights is, is kind of a model that I like a lot. Anyway, that was a bunch of things. I don't know. Like yeah, that. Eric and, and Kevin, what do you think? Yeah, just, just to refine the question a little bit. So, so the reason I bring this up is because I was chatting with a first year PhD and he was telling me, I'm never touching a robot again after doing this. Like the That's amount funny. of effort he put into evaluation and just carefully setting everything up for the conference paper was, was extremely tough. And I, I'm wondering, just given that, it feels like unless you have a dedicated team doing robust software engineering and, and best practices, like the sort of stuff you see at Google, DeepMind, et cetera, it's very hard to get statistically significant evaluations where we can truly benchmark that we are making progress towards some 
general purpose capability. So I, so I see a divide, like if you're in research and if you're in a big industry lab, it feels like it's, it feels like, yeah, there is this divide and it's hard to, to do this, this evaluation. So um, maybe Eric, you can potentially chat about that. Yeah, sure. I will say that as someone who works in industry, evaluation is still very hard for us. It's not like, it's not like, you know, being working in industry magically solves this problem. It's, it's maybe more mm -hmm. just like we have a full-time job that allows us to focus on like building and engineering for a long period of time, um, instead of having a like short-term pressure to finish research. Um, yeah, I think stepping back a little bit of like this kind of broader problem of like the, the difficulty of careful measurement in robotics, it's, it's really like, I think it, at the heart of it is like this debate of whether ro robotics is more of an engineering discipline or a science. And I think where this comes from is the fact that many roboticists choose to spend time doing engineering so that their like science can be kind of like moderately statistically re reproducible. Mm -hmm. um, and if, and if like it was reproducible, if like, let's say all the infrastructure that would make evaluation easy, like sim to rail or cloud benchmarks, like the um, real robot challenge that Pete mentioned, um, mm -hmm. if they were all kind of already set up and robots were just kind of some sort of software type problem, I think people would treat robotics more like a science. And um, the fact that like there's this debate question of whether robots is more engineering or science today, even, even today, and it has been for the last 50 years, like, um, it indicates to me that like we still haven't solved the problem of like how do you make th experiments reproducible enough that you can really make mm -hmm. sort some sort of certain claim uh, on something um and as for how people do in academia yeah i guess it's a it's a hard problem um probably betting on software whatever you can do in software is is the right way to go yeah yeah it's great it's great answer uh, eric thank you yeah, I, I guess also, you know, DeepMind released a paper a few few weeks ago. They spent about two, three years of data collection and they train on thousands of TPUs and CPUs and they get this really nice policy, but it's in SIM. None of it was done in the real world. And they do this all purely with behavior cloning. So I guess if, if we go back to this point that we were making about, you know, the what's under the hood has changed. Right now we're learning, we're learning the, the, the behaviors. Nothing's hard-coded, at least. Most of it isn't hard coded. I'm curious if you see, you know, imitation as a viable path towards, you know, obtaining these general purpose robots. Yeah, if you if you want to talk about that. Sure. Yeah. And Kevin, you cut out for a moment there, but I think I got the gist of the question. Basically, uh, you know, around how far well, to, can we get? to make it even more specific? Maybe you know, Eric and I and you, Kevin, we worked a lot on behavior cloning, which is a specific technique to imitation yes. learning. So. You know, I think a, a good question is how far can we take behavior cloning? And I think um, I think the answer is pretty far, but it's certainly not the end of the road, um, like by any means. And I think there's some key reasons to that. And you, you brought up, Kevin, sort of like, um, you know, language models. And to a certain extent, you can kind of say that a lot of progress in language models has been of behavior cloning type. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, approach. It's a little bit different, but, you know, overall supervised, um, um, approaches rather than something that's more of like a, uh, an agent that learns from experience, like an RL agent. Um, mm -hmm. and I think, I think one of the reasons that at least for me, and I imagine, um, Eric as well, that we like to study behavior cloning is because we can get pretty far in a moderate amount of effort. Um, 
and there's a, there's a lot of reasons we could go into like why i think behavior cloning is is nice it's very high bandwidth and uh, time efficient way i think to sort of transfer knowledge to the robot both like what you want it to do and how you want it to do it but um ultimately i think for being able to have the robot be very um capable i think i think it's challenging and i think uh one of the challenges at the end of the day even just breaks down to um when we do imitation on robotics, most of the time what we do is um, we teleoperate the robot and then and mm-hmm. then we sort of imitate or clone that behavior directly. And there's a lot of reasons why that, that that's kind of the easiest way to do it. Um, but I think that especially when you get into the kinds of embodiments that might be needed for a truly general purpose robot, like it would be very hard to teleoperate C-3PO or Rosie the robot partially because by manual uh, um, robots, so robots with two arms and, and two hands are, I think, very, very hard to teleoperate. I, I think I've, I tried what is probably the best setup that's ever been put together for a teleoperated by manual robot. And it, it was pretty cool, but it's still still quite hard. Um, you know, that was with- What are some of these challenges, Pete? Like, what are some of the challenges? What are some of the things that you're- By manual robots? Yeah. Um, when, when teleoperating them. Yeah, yeah. I think if, if someone were to try this. Yeah. Um, I think the specifically with bimanual compared to just one arm is that you want to often have the two arms come together to do something at the same time. So, you know, like let's say that you're peeling an orange with two hands and like to teleoperate that whole behavior without like having your having the uh, two arms of the robot just come together and just completely crush the orange, that would be very, very hard, I think. So this, especially when the two arms are going to be in close proximity and there's the capacity for them to exert a large amount of force on each other, that becomes very, very hard to teleoperate, I think. Do you think this will require like back-driven hands that provide the like feedback back to the, the user somehow? Or what do you think about haptics like being necessary for a two-arm manipulation? Yeah, it's a good question, Eric. The system that I tried even had like you know, kind of the best available VR gloves with haptic feedback. Um, and I, is that the, is that the Jeff Bezos demo Pete you're talking about the one where he laughs? So <laughs> Jeff Bezos did yeah. try the same robot. Um, there, oh, gotcha, there was gotcha, a handful, okay. it was a really cool thing. I'll, I'll say the names of some of the companies like Haptex and Syntouch, a, a few different companies. They all, I'm forgetting some, uh, shadow hands were involved. They all collaborated to put this like really cool demo together. And it was quite cool. Um, but you know, it, it's sort of, you know, I didn't like, it's not like you could, I think, peel an orange. Like I said, you could pick up pick up objects, do different things, but um, I think it's really hard. So yeah, so Eric, that system had um, some type of um, touch feedback. Um, I think that I think it'd be possible to engineer a system that could have really good haptic feedback and really low latency. I just think it would be very expensive and and very hard to build um, and. And then, and then also to Eric, you know, what if you want a robot with three arms or something? You know, it's just it becomes it becomes mm-hmm. hard to teleoperate at some point. I think, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think we can take. Uh, I think imitation is is uh, is very helpful. The other thing too is I I, w- I always like to think about like how do, how do um, how do things of of nature imitate? And dogs are just amazing, you know, as one example. And dogs imitate what humans do, but they have a completely different embodiment. And, um, you know, they're not like copying exactly the way that we move our hands and pick up things, but they, they have the ability to intuit 
you know, what is happening and, and figure out how to accomplish the same goal. And I was even reading this and I read this book, it sort of goes into like psychology and the sort of scope of, of dogs in, in, in human lives. And, um, it, it's, there's like psycho, like pretty recent psychology research showing that like dogs actually have this like ability in imitation. I mean, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that's sort of like not a surprising result because we sort of already know this intuitively, but yeah, dogs have pretty amazing, um, imitation abilities that go beyond just sort of direct monkey see monkey do type of type of behavior which is kind of more behavior cloning anyway dogs are also incredibly food motivated and so i think classically that's understood as like some sort of reinforcement learning type behavior do you see this imitation behavior in dogs as somehow being coupled to that like perpetually hungry like nature of dogs i think i think hunger plays a role but i think i don't know i i you know i grew up with dogs i really like dogs a lot i think there's there's also this definite this desire to like sort of you know be a people pleaser you know um it's not just food but also sort of uh you know not just get the pet from the you know not just like you know receive a a good job you know fido but also mm -hmm. sort of like mm -hmm. actually genuinely you know make their humans proud i think i think that is I don't have any evidence for that other than just my, my hunch, but I feel like that's a real thing too in, in dogs. Ah. I grew up with a dog. I, f I feel that. Yeah. I know so what you're this, talking about, Then there's a connection here from imitation to reinforcement learning, which is that if your reinforcement learning objective is to please a human, likely imitation type behavior is going to like give you a really nice like local minima for a lot of that sort of stuff. Right? Yeah, I think that's if a nice If your primary reinforcement learning goal is, is around like pleasing another agent, most likely you'll, you'll develop the emergence of like imitation behavior, I think. I think it's a, I think it's a very, uh, very good, uh, sort of initial, initial solution to, uh, yeah, to, to pleasing the, the other agencies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sort of copy what they're doing or, you know, the yeah, other thing too, uh, is dogs copy, dogs copy other dogs that, you know, especially like early in their lives, et cetera. Mm -hmm. et cetera. Yeah. I guess I wanted to touch more upon, you know, challenges and, and, Ignoring data collection challenges, if we just think about behavior cloning, you know, your vanilla behavior cloning um, algorithm, some people would argue that you don't really have task understanding about what not to do if you're doing, if you're trying to learn a task, right? And you're just trying to clone what you've seen. So, so do, you, do you see that as a fundamental limitation? You still need some kind of reward, right? Some binary signal telling you if you did the task correctly or not. And I think that gets us nicely to a bridge between, you know, we need both maybe a little bit of RL and a little bit of a lot of behavior cloning in my, you know, in my, in my opinion, but, but maybe we can talk a bit about that. Like, like what are the main challenges of behavior cloning? If I eliminated your data collection costs for you, if I gave you all the data in the world, do you still think we'd, we'd get there? Maybe Eric, you can, you can take that one. Sure. Yeah. I think we have to, so, yeah, I think in research, there's this question of like, how much imitation you want, how much reinforcement learning you want, how can we merge them together? And there's no end of papers that try to combine them in some way. Um, maybe we have to also like kind of define like, what is the kind of fuzzy boundary of regions that encompass imitation learning algorithms or supervised mm -hmm. learning algorithms? And what is the, the boundary of things that kind of encompass RL like algorithms? Because I think sometimes people will say, oh, you know, this is RL, but this is not. Um, so for example, uh, one one paper would be like decision transformers or upside down RL or um, sequence transformers. All these kind of papers concurrently propose this idea of rewriting reinforcement learning as a sequential um, supervised learning problem. Um, and is that an RL algorithm? Well, so from one perspective, um, it is sort of like an RL algorithm because 
your um, you're learning like the dynamics of trajectories and the generalization is giving you maybe the uh, stitching behavior that you would want to see in a more like constructed dynamic programming approach like with dqn or something um on the other hand maybe because the fact that you're not like explicitly hard coding the bellman inequality which is saying like essentially planning across your value function when training um maybe someone might not call that an rl algorithm because you're not incorporating that bias um but at the same time ppo does not well, sorry, naive policy gradients does not incorporate like the Bellman inequality as an inductive bias either. So I guess like, um, yeah, I'm curious what you guys define as RL. Maybe one answer for this is, in my view, reinforcement learning is more of a problem setting than an approach. And I think so, you know, and there is, you know, quite a lot of formalization of the RL setting and you know, basically, you know, you, you have a markup decision process with a certain set of transition dynamics and you get certain rewards from the environment. And I think that we have a problem setting that can be very um, clearly defined as the RL problem setting. And then kind of anything that you throw at that, it, you know, it, it might not have Bellman updates. It might not have a lot of the sort of accoutrements of, uh, uh, RL algorithms that we usually think of, but like it can still be applied to the RL setting. So even you can just do like nearest neighbor lookup on like, given the observations I'm seeing from the environment, um, in my past experience, like what's the closest thing, you know, some type of weighting between the closest thing that I've done before and like the highest reward that I got. And, you know, that is very different than most RL algorithms that we study, but if it's applied in the RL setting, um, and it's, you know, using rewards from the environment, then you could maybe still call it an RL algorithm. So, and I think too that, um, I think there's very much sort of kind of different cultures around supervised learning approaches and RL approaches, but I think certainly to some extent, you know, supervised learning can just be considered a subset of, of RL, I think is one valid view. Um, I don't know if that's that useful, but you know, you can just you can cast like all of supervised, uh, even just like, you know, classification problems as, as RL if you want. Um, but you, you know, you just might not be getting any actual rewards and you might not be able to improve from experience. So anyway, I, I, I was trying to respond to maybe, you know, some of the, like, let's try and be specific about like, you know, what is RL and what's not RL, but I think, um, you know, those things are, um, somewhat useful to be kind of clear, but at the same time, I think a lot of it is kind of more around, yeah, sort of what people actually do and, and how people think of approaches. And I think Eric's point around, you know, decision transformer and some of these other approaches, I think they do in an interesting way for the community kind of blur the lines that people usually think of as separating, um, techniques. Yeah. Um, I guess there's so another can thing. I, can I add one more point to that? So like going to sure. the practical level, like if you're a grad student and you, you know, you, you, you want to solve some robotic problem and, um, you, you know, you don't have too much experience in RL or supervised learning. Uh, so you, you, you had to choose something and you're kind of planning out like, you know, what combination of methods am I going to likely use my toolbox to try to solve the problem? Um, I would argue that like, inevitably you always have to implement behavior cloning as a baseline, just to test that your infrastructure kind of setup works at all before you do anything. So like the question of like how much imitation or supervised learning or sorry, or, or reinforcement learning you use is, um, it, it's a valid question, but you're going to have to inevitably implement BC anyway. So you might as well start with that and see how far you can go. 
think I think that's great. And yeah. and as as Eric and I know, there's like a lot of subtle differences, even just with you know like how do you normalize your data and you know all these like other yes. just sort of like boring and um, but very important. I mean, I don't know, boring to some people, but very important in terms of like making a actual practical differences and how well different methods do. But I also, Eric, I'm curious, we, there was the question floating around of how far can we take behavior cloning? And I'm curious your, your view on that. And for, for other folks, I think Eric recently put out one of the, in my mind, sort of studies in a research paper that tried to study in like the most, most amount of diverse situations and sort of, uh, also, uh, requests of a robot that has been trained with sort of behavior cloning style um, uh, techniques, like a just a huge amount of diversity compared to what folks usually try to deploy behavior cloning manipulation mm -hmm. robots in. And so I think Eric has sort of like very unique experience to sort of uh, poke at this question. Yeah, go yeah. for it, Eric. Uh, sure. So just for context, it's like we, we collect a lot of teleoperation and then we trained mean squared error behavior cloning um, or Huber loss, but mostly in the mean squared error regime um, on, on all this data. And it kind of works. And um, uh, it's this experience has kind of made me sort of believe that behavior cloning can go really, really far. And um, we, we report OK numbers in the paper, but I think it actually can be taken much further than that. Um, and we're starting to see some signs of life on that direction as well. Um, and one way that I've kind of changed my own research direction is trying to actually pursue simplicity to its limit. So I'm something I'm kind of curious these days and is whether we can actually just go back to like classification, not even like, you know, uh, behavior cloning because cross entropy loss is even more stable empirically than like uh, behavior, like mean squared error type regression losses. Um, so like, can we, can we just like kind of regress back to like the old cafe architectures and, and just <laughs> scale up on like that uh, infrastructure? Cafe. I haven't heard that word in a while. <laughs> in a deep learning yeah, context, it was, it was. It's it's great. It's it might be all we need. Like for those of you that don't know, Cafe was a deep learning uh, like library that was popular up until maybe 2017 or so, or maybe a little bit after. There was Cafe Two for a while, but I could fold it into PyTorch if I remember correctly. But the thing I loved about Cafe is when people would release their papers, they would re release an entire copy of Cafe that you had to build from source with their code. It was it was a funny time. <laughs> yeah was way before my my time uh, yeah it, it was basically this like c++ cuda deep learning framework mostly good for object uh, detection classification perception type tasks and then like um you you, you coded in proto buffs that just configure your network and that was it another thing i want to point out with with what eric said is eric said that in, in some situations the performance has been like sort of at a certain level but that there's signs of life that it could could be quite a lot better and i think there's an interesting point there that like i think people often develop taste for at least for me that there's sort of if you see something work at a certain level that maybe all you need to make it work two or three times as good whatever is just a lot more data and a lot more experience and trying different things and i was thinking about this recently back to dogs sorry my second time bringing up dogs in this in this uh but I, I was thinking about the other day, I saw this video on Twitter of this dog who's like grabbing these different tires and like putting them together in such a way that like it could with just its mouth grab four like bike sized tires all together. And it was really a tricky, it had to basically stack them together and grab one through the middle. It was like really complicated. And I was thinking that I think to a certain extent, if we get a robot that has dog level intelligence, 
that we probably just need to sort of, you know, make the data set 10 times bigger and, and then you get human level intelligence. I, I feel like the, uh, you know, there's, well, there's a few different sort of, uh, comments on that. One is that dogs are very smart. And then two is that a lot of times I think just sort of cranking on, on simple methods as, as Eric was talking about can then lead to, um, you know, pretty powerful things. Uh, Pete, are you familiar with the term stigmergy? I'm not. What is it? So, uh, for example, ants will lay like pheromone trails on the ground and the other ants will then come across, not the ant, but their trail. And then that allows them to communicate across time and space. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it also forms like a, sh a sort of version of a shared memory um, for, mm -hmm. for many animals. For this dog example that you're bringing up, I'm wondering like how much of the intelligent behavior you're seeing in the dog is due to uh, some sort of long horizon planning where the dog is like thinking, okay, I got to stack the tires and then I'll grab them versus like stigmergy where the dog kind of like has very short term memory is probably hungry and thinking about many things. And then it, it just like happens to see that the tires are together. Uh, and then it, and then like it greedily kind of like will pick up all the tires because in the past it, it just kind of set up the environment so that it will succeed later, but not, not like directly. That's a good question. I think it's, I don't have any intuition on how much it is one of over the other. And then also as another point, you know, on that specific video I was talking about, maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe that dog has learned that behavior over sort of like, you know, months of experience or even saw the human do the same thing. So it, it's hard to say, I think. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a cool point, Eric, that there's sort of a lot of different ways in which intelligence can manifest. So, so like I bring that up because, um, I think we often think about these kind of intelligent behaviors as being really, really like tricky for like long horizon planning stuff. I do wonder like how long horizon, like actual intelligent agents, like people, animals are, because like we live in a world in which like, uh, objects kind of persist. And so like that removes a lot of need for like us to remember things, right? Like we just encounter objects where we left them previously, or if you're trying to solve some sort of physical manipulation task, um, the state of the world kind of stays in a way where like you could then encounter it and then, and then do the task. Right. So, so perhaps like you don't need very long horizon kind of intelligent capabilities to do tasks. If, if the world is remembering everything pre mm -hmm. definitely. And I think in animals, it's more of kind of this like physical manifestation thing. But the thing that I'm definitely thinking of Eric, as you're talking about, this is like when I'm programming, I just store like a ton of the knowledge that I need just in the internet and I search for it when I need it. Like I never remember how to use FFmpeg. Like I just search like, <laughs> how do I tie all these videos together and FFmpeg or uh, Mavotlib, I feel like I know actually quite a bit of how to use, it. you know, you sort of like, but there's just a bunch of things that you just, you choose to not remember and you just store it either, you know, and there's, you know, there's the sort of like notebook version, even, you know, just physical notebooks. So there's, there's the book version, but then definitely i think the distributed internet version and things like stack overflow they they just store like a huge amount of, of knowledge out there and then you know things like um uh, automated uh, code completion tools are starting to bring that sort of even closer to uh you know maybe you never even need to know how to write you know boilerplate parts of code again for most programmers because it just automatically appears for you so yeah yeah i guess my answer to that is it feels to me that humans have very fuzzy long-term planning, but very precise short-term planning. An example of that is, so there's a coffee mug on my table here. If I try and ask you to imagine the trajectory, if I hit it and it fell on the ground, mm -hmm. you probably 
have some very fuzzy, you can imagine how it would fall, but you don't know like the exact dynamics. But if you were to watch it live and I ask you like the next second where it's going to be, you, you can probably guess or like, you know, what's going to happen at the next time step. So I feel like we just expend more energy on local things and we have very fuzzy details about the future. It's kind of like when you ask a person to describe a face, they can have like a very general description of it. So I feel like that's enough. Maybe you need like just enough details for long horizon planning, but very good next step dynamics model or something like that for, for general purpose intelligence. If you had a general purpose intelligence, like let's say DeepMind or OpenAI or Google or, or some lab, like train such a thing and it can do many things, how would you know it had a dynamics model? Um, it's a good question, Eric. I think if you just kind of asked, um, well, one one question that kind of bifurcates, like, you know, how, how we answer this is like, how does such a system interact with, with us? Right. And I think you could think of some crazier sci-fi ways that this might happen, but maybe the sort of most, um, tangible, um, practical way that you can think about this now is, you know, something like kind of like a Google assistant or a Siri where you just kind of talk to it. Right. And I think if you were yeah, to, or prompt tuning, yeah. So I think if you were to just like ask a, such a system that you're talking about, Eric, like, you know, what will happen if I, um, knock my coffee cup over, you know, then if it is able to answer that question, maybe it doesn't explicitly like have any part of the system that is allocated to be the quote unquote dynamics model. But if it's able to answer questions that are about predictions into the future, then it has something that, you know, that's dynamics is predictions in the future of, you know, from states and actions of, uh, yeah, I, it, I think that it would essentially be able to do it if, if it could respond to requests of, mm -hmm. um, you know, what's going to happen in the future. But what if, you know, instead of, so I guess what you're describing is like a, a behavioral inference that you would observe the system doing, and that would let you to conclude that it must have some sort of dynamics capability. But if that behavior was trained using, I don't know, behavior cloning or mm -hmm. something where like it was just trained to regress predictions about the future, like text descriptions about the future conditioned on some query, like, that wouldn't be classically understood as a dynamics model because people think about dynamics model as something that you hard code, right? Like, you know, next date or inverse model or some sort of implicit dynamics. Mm -hmm. And so if, if dynamics models, the behavior of convincing you that it has a dynamics model can be done using something that is classically not understood as a dynamics model, but whose behavior convinces you that it is like, would you still like call that a, a dynamics model then? It's a good question. Yeah. I don't think. I think that I wouldn't call it a dynamics model, but I think, um, it would have the same capability, um, sort of mm -hmm. to, to the, you know, from our experience of, 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 of using it. And I, I think it's a great point. Like if, if every single interaction that we could possibly think of with, um, in every single scenario could be thought of, and then we could just log what, what it should do and then just do behavior cloning of it, then 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 such a system could could do everything we wanted to do sort of by definition i think that's that's hard in practice though because um there's just so many different scenarios in the world that um it's unclear that is a tenable approach but potentially it is do you think you need to hard code some notion of causality for dynamics models hmm 
That's a great question. I think um I think at least a hel- helpful example to think about is is, you know, as as you all know, the the way that large language models work now and they don't have any uh at least as far as I know, the you know, the ones that are people are using the most do do not actually have anything hard coded in in terms of causality, but they they can work quite well at you know, at, at least they can work impressively in many scenarios at, at, at doing certain things. Um, I think they can also fail dramatically and have other issues with them, but certainly they're like very impressive in a lot of ways, as you two know. Yeah, they they shouldn't work at causal things, but you know, a person move, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, Kevin, yeah. I maybe yeah, yeah. maybe one question that I'd be curious to go back to, which is kind of from the, from kind of your opening question, but I think another reason that sort of, to some extent, like general purpose robotics feels like it hasn't made um, a huge amount of progress in some ways, I think is because, you know, with due respect to all the folks that are working on it, like nobody has like really tried to make a uh, sort of general purpose robot. And I, it, so it's so sort of like, so to a certain extent, like, why, why don't we have them? It's sort of like the answer is like, oh, nobody's tried, you know? So, and I, I think that people are working on it, many aspects of the problem and inspired by that sort of type of a, a problem statement. But, you know, I think to draw an analogy with like where autonomous cars were in 2012, 2013, 2014, and then the huge amount of investment that went into them and continues to this day, um, I think if you were to say in 2012, like, why don't we have autonomous cars? I think a valid answer would be like, well, nobody's like really tried, you know, mm. I think we still don't really have, you know, autonomous cars at the level that at least people, um, are, are thinking of, if they will be, and it seems somewhat inev- inevitable in the long term, Um, but we still don't sort of have that level of autonomy in, in, in the car fleet. Um, but at least now people are trying, you know, or that is just objectively the case that a lot of people are throwing a ton of resources mm-hmm. into into such a problem, and the same is is not is not the case for sort of general purpose robotics. Agree, agree. I feel like everyone's doing their own little things. It also doesn't help that robotics is like super big. There's so many different umbrellas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people are working on task and motion planning. People are working on drone like drone stuff is could be could be counted as you know robotics research, manipulation, etc. So, so so I guess. What do you guys think? What do we need? What are we missing to get everyone to align in the correct direction and to pull? Like, it feels like another issue that we didn't touch upon is that hardware is different. Like, every lab has different hardware. Google has Google, uh, Facebook, et cetera. They all have different robots. Everyone has their own tooling. It's just hard to say that my robot is better at solving task A than another person's robot because it's not an apples to apples thing. So, you know, are we are we doomed or is is there something we can do about this? If you look at the average lifespan of like robotics code bases, right, over the last five decades, I would guess it's I, I don't have a data based answer, but just like my guess would be something between two to seven years, maybe. And then like the, the kind of outliers here would be like the ROS2 stack, ROS, PR, everything developed on PR2. Those are like the very long lived mm-hmm. robot stacks. But there's this kind of like, you know, going to what Pete was saying about like, no one's really tried. I think like some of the problems that we have to solve before we can like really make an honest effort to try it is just to like, uh, 
increase the kind of cumulative um, size of our systems. M much of academic robotics kind of like starts with your PhD and then you kind of start writing your own robotics stack or, you know, a little RL library. And then like when you graduate, you kind of throw it away and the next PhD comes and starts over. I think we'll ne if, we, if we continue to do this kind of pattern of working behavior, we'll never get to general purpose robots just because like it's not possible to do it in like the span of a PhD. Another point to actually like um, the hardware stuff, I've heard, I, I went to Cora uh, in London, I was talking to someone who worked uh, in Japan for a bit, and he was telling me that there's a lot of really great humanoid hardware platforms in um, Japanese academic labs, but um, many of the labs, they are not that interested in like, you know, putting everything together, like the end-to-end -end learning and everything, because their area of expertise is hardware. And so they're interest, they're more interested kind of in this short-term uh, objective of just publishing cool things that you could do with the hardware or like cool demos you can do with the hardware, but not necessarily really doing the whole end-to-end -end full iguana type of thing <laughs> on their cool humanoid. Yeah, about that, I was chatting with Peter the other day uh, and I was telling him, you know, GitHub has introduced something called sponsor. So you can sponsor someone who's doing some, some sort of open source code base. And I was thinking, It'd be nice to have a PhD model or, or some some financial model where, you know, I release a code base for some new uh, behavior cloning algorithm, just, uh, you know, spitballing here. And then, you know, people are sponsoring me to maintain the code base and to patch it to new, say, newer versions of PyTorch, newer versions of, of whatever. And I think we need more of good sweet practices for robotics if we want to, you know, have momentum and and make progress i guess my my question here is do you guys feel like the jump to to google where you do have to do good software practices do you think that's helped do you do you, do you believe it's needed for good robotics research and yeah curious to to hear your thoughts on that yeah that's a great question kevin i think it definitely overall helps in a lot of ways um and i think that overall to kind of plus one both what you're saying, saying Eric and Kevin, I think that more sort of software engineering, good practice and, and systems would be helpful overall for the field. Um, I think too, like, I think that there's a lot of different folks that are, are interested in, in contributing to like the development of the future of robotics. And I think that in different scenarios, different folks have different, um, you know, um, opportunities in terms of like what resources they have and, and how they can contribute. And I think so for a lot of folks, maybe, you know, um, you know, making some RL library and making some new like RL algorithm is, you know, maybe they don't have access to robots and things like that. So maybe that's like a good thing for them to work on. Um, mm -hmm. but I do think that it would be really helpful for the field overall if we sort of kind of try at sort of a uh, sort of another level to do things with that are like more challenging than we've ever tried before with a lot of kind of engineering effort behind them and a lot of good science along the way and a lot you know a lot of the best techniques you know drawing from theory and all the other sort of uh, aspects that make uh, that together can make robots awesome and we use those experiences to sort of like you know nail out like what are the really the areas that that um that could be improved on and then that can help sort of then in turn inform you know what this folks building rl libraries like what type of rl environments should we be working on and what type of you know 
just help sort of inform the problem space, I think would be, would be very helpful. And then to a certain extent that kind of puts on the folks that are in a position to try to do these types of efforts. Um, I think it, it highlights that like communicating out, um, results and analysis and suggestions for future work, I think is very important. So if we think about like, you know, what would it take to kind of, um, um, finish the whole, do everything robot kind of stuff, like from a, from an engineering side, I think some of the core pieces seem pretty obvious to me. So if you need a great simulator that can simulate a whole bunch of robots in a lot of different environments. And then of course you need the real thing. The thing has to work very reliably. And, um, you know, you have the ability to, you know, uh, teleoperators, so you have a good teleoperation stack, but not necessarily teleoperation. So maybe you want the things, the safety primitives you would need for it to do some RL in the real world, like a baby. And, you know, mm -hmm. like everyone kind of who, who works on some part of the whole robotic stack will, will understand how important some of these pieces are. And it's a little surprising to me that there, there's no like one stack that really just does it all, right? Like it, it, it's good for um, simulating a humanoid, but also some small robot arm. Um, and then and then like it comes like prepackaged with sim to real stuff if you want to use that and it comes with like good support for if you want to swap things out with deep learning and yeah i guess like after 50 years despite the kind of sort of somewhat obvious straightforward nature of like what the underlying shared pieces need to be it's kind of still surprising to me that it's hard to like bridge i don't know some some kind of like um okay here's one example so uh you, there's good simulations for like humanoids and musculoskeletal systems, but it's kind of actually hard to like combine them with, um, I don't know, the kind of rich assets that you see in game engines, right? So mm -hmm. like, why is it that there's just these kind of disparate software stacks that you don't really get like everything uh, in you know, in one package? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great point, Eric. Pete, do you, do you want to say something? Yeah, it's a great point. I, and I think too, uh, we can kind of point to um, some areas over the past handful of years that have been really accelerated, I think, by great software, you know, for sure, like the sort of overall deep learning community, like things like, you know, modern incarnations of Jack's TensorFlow, PyTorch, et cetera, like these things are like very uh, huge multipliers on sort of productivity in these areas. Like mm -hmm. if you were to imagine like what would you know, NeurIPS 2022 look like if like somebody like released a worm across the internet that deleted every instance known to mankind of, um, you know, all the deep learning libraries, like NeurIPS 2022 would be really boring, <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, that's not to say that like, uh, you need to be, you need access to a deep learning library to do interesting work. There's a lot of work that is, uh, you know, maybe doesn't involve these types of things, but certainly for, for a huge part of the community, these types of tools are very um, huge accelerators on progress. Um, and in, in certain communities, like, um, in, um, natural language, things like the, like, you know, hugging face, for example, has all these like great libraries that I know people like, I haven't really used them much myself, but I know that people love them. Um, in robotics, there's, yeah, Pete, there are uh, like about, popular, about that. sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Just about the hugging face. Like, I guess the question is why don't we have a hugging face for robotics after, you know, 50, 50 years? Well, what's what, like, why is it so hard to do that? I know there's Willow Garage was kind of the hugging face, but that failed. Like, why don't we have a hugging face? Why aren't people um, pooling their resources to do it? I would say, Kevin, respectfully, that Willow Garage ended, but I don't know. I think in a lot of ways, 
it was a success. I think, I think Willow Garage from the Willow Garage folks, a lot of knowledge about robotics, um, came out and, you know, Ross itself sort of came out from, from mm -hmm. that world. And for those that don't know, Ross robot operating system, very common. And now this Ross too, very common. Garrick mentioned it briefly earlier, very common, um, layer of software for running robots. And I've used it a lot. It, you know, like anything it's imperfect, but I think there's a lot of great, um, elements of design that have gone into Ross over the years. Um, mm -hmm. and there's other things that came out of Willow Garage too. If, if, if my memory is correct, I, you know, like the, the PR2 robot, the PR1 and the PR2 robot came out of Willow Garage and those are even still used today, you know, 10, over 10 years later for, for, uh, robot research. Um, you know, I've heard from folks that have worked with them that they're challenging in some ways, but they also have a lot of, of, of good aspects to them. They are, you know, biome robots with nicely mounted head cameras. Um, mm -hmm. So Ross 2 has continued to be developed today to my understanding, yes. but it's, I don't think it has the, the level of investment and speed of progress that we see in like deep learning Certainly not. frameworks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Respectfully, and I, respectfully I feel to like... folks working on Ross. It's, yeah, it's, it's I, and I even, yes. I even looked into this, Eric, if you sort of look at like how many pip installs or, you know, pseudo app get installs, uh, that these different types of libraries get, if I remember correctly, Ross is, I shouldn't say numbers, but it's, it's, or it's a, it, or at least an order of magnitude or more or less than, um, Things like you know TensorFlow, PyTorch, etc. But it's it's still pretty broadly used. Um, mm. I mean, I mean, Pete, about that, like pip install PyTorch or pip install Jax works on maybe any machine and any you know Anaconda or pip. But uh -huh. if you try to pip to, to pip install ROS on Anaconda, there's like entire blog blogs and tutorials, and it's just very hard to do. So yeah, it's just if there's friction between the user and the package, that also like hurts. Yeah. Another aspect here too, right, is like, why don't we have, and well, two things first, actually. One is that there are like software libraries out there that try to kind of be it for robotics, whatever it is. But then my mm -hmm. point is that like it, like what it is, is, is part of the open question, right? So like, um, mm -hmm. you know, what even problem statements is it going after? What types of how do you interact with it? Like how, how is progress measured? Like all of these types of things, we can come up with answers right here, but I think to a certain extent, the sort of like the right types of problem statements in robotics are, 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 um, sort of changing in ways that I think are still changing in ways that for other fields, maybe it, it it's, it's not the same. Um, and it's a bit of a chicken and egg yeah, problem, definitely. Right? like in deep learning, um, I guess like what it is was also very unclear until certain like algorithms beat state of the art. And then people decide, okay, I want that in my, my new software package. And, and then like, maybe there's more and more consolidation towards the things that people believe work. And we need something like that for robotics as well. Um, but I don't know, even with robotics, like, I feel like there's a few basic obvious, maybe this is a little too opinionated, but like, I feel like there's a few basic pieces. Like you want a rich world, open-ended, like, like Grand Theft Auto scale thing mm -hmm. you want like humanoids eventually, right? Like maybe, maybe initially if you're doing a robotic startup, you don't necessarily want to make a humanoid, but eventually you want a humanoid and something that has like five hands and stuff. I, I don't even know if there's like a simulation that I can just install with like five hands and a rich world. Like, it's <laughs> a great point. I'm sorry, five fingered hands and a rich a world, point. right? Like, and, and yeah. so some simple features I think are, are missing still. Definitely. And I think, I think a really nice easy to use simulation world with some match between some real hardware and Eric things you were saying, I think would be awesome. You mentioned humanoids. I think that robots that have legs, I have a lot of, um, advantages in some scenarios as basically you were mentioning too, Eric, like there's a lot of times where it's like, you know what wheels are pretty good too. 
Um, and then do we need one arm? Do we need two arms? Two arms starts to be way more complicated than, than one arm. Or do we need five arms, as Eric was saying? One, like, I, I think that maybe the, I'm not sure it's the best approach, but it's at least a reasonable sort of practical on the fly sort of like thought here is that if we kind of pick like seven embodiments that we kind of decide like, these are the kind of set of embodiments of robots. So embodiment encompasses you know, sort of all of the sort of like physical layout and actuators and sensors and everything, right? If we sort of pick like, here's the set that we want to work on and, um, and then go forward with sort of designing like, what are the tasks? What are the, the evaluation scenarios? I think that would be really helpful where the key point in my mind is like, you know, we don't, I think it would be um, tricky to sort of invest too much of the entire field's work on sort of like one kind of specific embodiment. And I think in parallel, like, like again, let's maybe let's pick like seven and kind of like focus, put our heads down and focus on that for three years. Um, but then in parallel, I think, you know, there's a lot of amazing work that's going on in the hardware development world of folks that are, you know, thinking of new actuators, new sensors, new ways of, of putting hardware together. But um, I think there's pretty good stuff out there already in terms of not only there's, you know, a handful of reasonable sort of specific embodiments out there of robots that could be reasonably general purpose. But also if you just kind of do a little bit of integration of some off the part, off the shelf components, you know, like let's take some wheeled base put a couple arms on it, mount a, you know, camera. And, uh, I think you could get reasonably far. That work is hard. I'm not saying that works easy, but I think, I think a lot of the components are, are somewhat there. I think one thing we didn't touch upon is, uh, hardware costs. So do you think that's been an impediment to why we haven't made progress just as fast as other fields? You know, robot robot arms used to cost an arm and a leg, no pun intended, and it's slowly gone down. But but I wonder if, I, I think personally, it's not just the robot. Like to me, if we had good software, it still we still would have made more progress than even if arms had cost a lot. But I wonder how much do you think, if robot arms were extremely cheap, like iPhone level cheap, like just a it's just like buying a phone. Do you think we would have seen much more rapid progress? Xiaomi now makes like a smartwatch that's kind of sort of like a Fitbit, I, call it, I think a Mi Band or something, um, for less than a hundred dollars. And I think for that cost, it like has a battery that lets it run for over a week. It's got like um, a heart rate monitor. It's got like a clock, of course. It's got like it's got like a lot of sensors packed into like something that's like about this big. And uh, you know, they also recently announced that they're working on some like quadruped. So, so I feel like with the Actually, the, so there's some really cool technology transfer coming from like semiconductors and smartphones that might sort of in a in a kind of um, roundabout way, like really influence robotics and, and the miniaturization of robotics. And and also like the form factor is so small that like I have no idea how they solve the heat problem with like compute and stuff. But, you know, it works. And and I think like maybe a smartphone manufacturer in the world uh, in the future will have a, the, the necessary tech to like make robotics low cost and cheap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, Eric. And, and another uh sort of industry that i think is contributing lots of knowledge and sort of uh you know sort of accumulated investment of capital into engineering on the hardware side is the drones market you know like last time i looked you know dji is multi-billion dollar company and sells tons of drones and i think that it's at least my um, impression that the investment in like dc brushless motors and a lot of other sort of you know contr control components have sort of nicely um, made their way over to, mm -hmm. you know, things like designs of, of quadrupeds and stuff like that. So yeah. I think a lot of these things are helpful. AR, VR too. What's our? AR and like 
I think that kind of research has also helped with. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Facebook has this like incredible exoskeleton now, right? Like, and you know, an exoskeleton for haptics is just like a step away from a exoskeleton that's a robot that you know can autonomously move itself. Um, I, I, yeah, I asked I asked someone who works on that team, and they can't like drive itself yet, but you know, make it a little stronger, and it could be an Iron Man suit. <laughs> And I think both on the hardware side and then also on the software side too, I think AR VR has a lot of, um, especially on the AR side where you actually need to be doing perception of, of the world that kind of, you know, sort of enable certain types of experiences. I think there's a lot of overlap with, um, you know, if you had a truly immersive and intelligent, um, AR sort of agent or experience, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, there's a lot of overlap with, um, types of things that we might think we want on robots. Um, I'm very excited about like this kind of like industry working on something like drones or, or like, let's say Microsoft connect. And then like that has an immediate tech transfer over to robotics and at a very mm -hmm. like scaled up and low, low cost way. And maybe like as technology in other parts of the world, like advance in the future, robotics will just naturally inherit uh, a lot of this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So I guess maybe the last thing we can talk about is what are you excited about? Like looking in the next 50 years, what are you the most excited about? And yeah, parting thoughts. Pete. Wow. Yeah. Bam. Big question. Um, so, you know, maybe from the perspective of robots, um, and some other things too. So I think, um, you know, an obvious answer is like increasing diversity of the things that robots can do and uh, the like sort of actual, like practical, helpful things that, um, they could do in our lives. Um, um, I also think too, you know, like doing that in a way that, you know, collectively as a society, we sort of, you know, benefit from and enjoy and like, you know, rather than of course, you know, there's a lot of folks that sort of have feelings about robots that are not always necessarily just, you know, uh, uh, you know, that they're always our friends, but I think, I think we can certainly have, have that be a scenario where we have, um, friendly robots that are very helpful. Um, just ask for it, right? Eric says, yeah, just ask for it. Um, so, and I think, I think sort of like grappling through these questions collectively as a society, I think will be, I don't think that that's a lot of conversation and a lot of, you know, between a whole world of folks. And I think that'll be. I don't know if that will be um, that just sort of carefree and, and, and uh, joyful of an experience, but I think it'll be really in interesting. Um, and I think that uh, yeah, robots will progressively be more capable. And um, yeah, a lot, a lot of that, a lot of that is exciting. I think too. I think another thing that's that's always exciting to me is that to a certain extent, like working on making robots more general purpose and do all these things that they can't do today is is very much sort of you know like. Uh, the type of thing like going to the moon in the sixties or whenever we went where, you know, we develop all this other cool technology, technology along the way. And, and that can have impact across um, a variety of other fields as well. So I think like, to me, the kind of, at the end of the day, so far, the sort of most exciting application of what we would call sort of modern day AI technology, at least one example I would say is alpha fold, right? Like the ability to actually predict, protein folding with amazing accuracy. Now that is just something that did not exist at all a few years ago and now does. And I think that's quite amazing. Now, did that directly emerge from 
robotics maybe not necessarily but i mean alpha fold i think uh, correct me if i'm wrong i think it was built in jacks and you know that's there those are that's developed by uh, you know folks that i know at google and uh, you know alpha fold was developed by deepmind very much out of the sort of like um uh, deep learning community so yeah any advanced supervised learning will be really useful for robotics definitely any advanced supervised learning useful for robotics and then i think too that robotics sort of giving back to the rest of the community as well in terms of you know hey we figured out that like in really hard to evaluate scenarios here's cool ways to do evaluation in like in regimes where like data is really hard to get and you can't um interact too much with the world otherwise you might or you have to at least interact with the world in a very smart way so you don't sort of uh, you know, hurt the environment or the robot itself. Like, I think there's a lot of aspects of the robotics problem that are just really interesting from uh, sort of, uh, you know, aspects of the problem that can be somewhat separated from the fact that there are actual sort of physical robots. And I think that's is one of the reasons why a lot of people like to work on robotics um, along with others. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, Eric, what do you think? I really plus one to the last um, point you said about like, uh, learning to do and interact with the world. In, in some ways, it's like robotics, doing robotics research is like the frontier of how you do science uh, on systems that are very hard to do science for. Like, you know, another domain that's very hard is like, um, you know, medicine and stuff because you can't like perform ran random controlled trials. But in robotics, you can you can do that. But like, there's this, there's this causal context factor that changes every time you run an experiment, right? And how do you do experiments? Uh, and that context factor is like the world, right? You, you affect the world, you affect the robot, and now your next experiment is affected by your previous one. So that they're no longer independent samples anymore. And like in some ways, this is a really like hard mode science problem. Um, and I think like whatever robotics does to kind of make this better will have incredible benefits for the rest of science that struggles with these kind of problems. Um, that's what I'm excited about. Uh, I think that if let's say, you know, we get robots to do really smart things or, you know, robots that can answer causal questions without being trained on like explicit hard-coded causality structures, like that will usher in a new era of philosophy where like we start to question the very basics of like what we think intelligence is and um, the meaning of words and you know, the meaning of anything. Um, and I think if, 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 if like, you know, some sort of quote unquote AGI is re realized in, in the next, uh, in our lifetimes, that'll really change about like how we, how we think about, yeah, philosophy at large and even maybe like religion. So that's, that's what I'm most excited about. I love these two answers. Thanks so much guys. Okay. Well, what are you, 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 what, what, yeah, what is your take on your take? What are you most excited about? Um, these days, things that interest me the most. Um, is being able to talk to my robot and, and nudge it in the right direction as it's learning. I feel like the human in the loop aspect is underexplored in robotics. And I feel like as someone who's just starting his PhD, that's something I really want to focus on. Like, you know, it's, this comes out of frustration watching my RL agents do really dumb things and they're very close to doing the right thing. And if you could just tell them, hey, just turn left, you're almost there. Yeah, yeah being, being able to communicate and to correct in a very easy way, you know, using language, I think that's, that's what I want to work on. I think it's a it's a it's a, it's a great it's topic, a great area, Kevin. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, guys. This was wonderful. That was good. Great chatting as always. Thanks. This Eric was a pleasure. Yeah, definitely a pleasure.